Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast that explores the family history of killers. I'm Denise, and with me is Zelda. Now, let's get started. It's been a while. Hey, Denise, how are you doing? Pretty good. And welcome, everybody, to Murderous Roots, where we look into the family trees of some killers. Woohoo! So, how you been? It's been a while since we got together. Well, you know, my whole life has been upended and changed and crazy. (laughs) Um, But I finished the move, so all my stuff is now under one place. And now I just have to, you know, unpack, which I'm just, you know, blah. (laughs) And I had ordered a table from Pier 1, and Mm -hmm. um, it was supposed to show up, I don't know, three weeks ago, and has not shown up. And they finally, like, a week ago, I got through to someone who was like, yeah, we're just going to ship you another one, because we don't even know where that one is. I'm like, okay. So it's been a week, I haven't heard anything, I haven't gotten a shipping link or anything. And I'm like, oh, I dread calling them back. And going through right. all the hoops again. And at this point, I'm just like, just cancel it. I don't need it that bad. Just, you know, I don't know. But it's a cute table. I wanted because I, I have a patio at my new Ooh. place. And I wanted to have like a cute little table out on my patio. So I could like perhaps eat breakfast out there or something. So we'll see how that goes. But I don't um, blame you. We, we didn't get our table until last year. We've been in the house since 2015. and it it was a used one it was somebody we knew was selling it and i'm like we'll take it Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. you know for 50 bucks i got a table and four chairs and a outdoor rug nice that's very cool yeah this is how i do my deals (laughs) well and you have such a great backyard to just hang out in yeah it's nice that's very cool nice very cool so it sounds like your summer's going well it is. The girls are just having a good time. They came back from their trip. Um, if anybody's been listening, I was saying how they went on two week trip with my parents, although they cut it a short, day short because <laughs> grandma and grandpa were a little tired. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> and they said that's the last time they're doing a trip that size with the, that mean grandkids again, because mm-hmm. there was five grandkids on this trip. So my parents are in their early 70s, so I, I can't say as I blame them. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, God love them for even attempting it. Wow. Yeah. And then after they got back a couple weeks, we went out to Iowa and saw my in-laws. And I got to tell you, so do you ever watch Dine-Ins, Drive-Ins, and Dives? Oh, wow. yes. Guy Fieri is a national treasure. I love yes. him. I thought you, I knew you liked him. I wasn't sure if you watched that show. Oh, for sure. So there was a restaurant featured in Des Moines. Um, years ago, apparently. And so we were out there to celebrate my father-in-law's birthday. And we went, he chose to go to this restaurant that was on diners, drive-ins and dives. Now my brother-in-law and his family have been there before. It was really good. It's called Mi Patria and it's an Ecuadorian restaurant. Oh, ooh, delicious. And it's the first time I've ever had Ecuadorian food. Oh, wow. and it was so good. Their empanadas were like to die for. Oh my gosh, it sounds delicious. I would just make that a meal, mm-hmm. maybe with some rice, and I would be very happy. I ended up getting the arroz con pollo. Oh, oh, yum. And we were discussing how, you know, every culture has their version of chicken and rice. Mm-hmm. And when you're looking at the Latino cultures, you have, I've had Puerto Rican arroz con pollo a Cuban version, Mexican, they're all different. And this one was even more different. And it was kind of like a stir fry. Okay. And that's, but oh, like each bite was just like, so. Oh, you're getting me hungry, Denise. Yeah, well, you know. (laughs) Since I left Chicago, my restaurant options have diminished greatly. So, yeah. But they do have an Olive Garden here, so. Oh, well, yeah. I'm good to go. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of we- I'm not a huge Olive Garden fan. I got to oh, tell you. Really? Truth. I do love them. Although I don't expect authenticity when I go to Olive Garden. No. I mean, if you're looking for real Italian, you don't go to Olive Garden. No, but they have really good soup and breadsticks. And so that, 
Yeah. Yeah. So like their soup, salad and breadsticks thing is like, okay, when all else fails, I can go get that. And it's, and I'm happy and it's delicious and their breadsticks are amazing. So that I admit, I will go there just for that. I love their Zupa Toscano. Hey, are we, are we like getting paid by any of these people? Are there, are there sponsors? Okay. I would love to be a sponsor for some of these places, but (laughs) yeah. I'm like, hey, um, you know, I would settle for, you know, maybe a free meal. (laughs) (laughs) No, a little more than that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Those soup, salad, and breadsticks, man. Could you imagine having like free soup, salad, and breadsticks for life? That I would take. That would be be worth it. Or at least for a year. That would be so fun. Okay, now I'm going to daydream about that. Like, (laughs) you know, rather than think about unpacking, I'm going to think about unlimited soup, salad, and breadsticks. Oh, you're so bad. So instead of dreaming about that, why don't we get started? Well, I have to tell you, I am incredibly intrigued by the person you've chosen for today. Yeah, you had never heard of him before, right? I had not. I had not. Who would now would you like to share the name? Sure. We're going to be talking about John List. And you know, that name is just so unassuming. And Mm -hmm. honestly, Denise, um, that was pretty much his character for most of this thing. And this is why I'm so intrigued is because he starts off as a sort of everyman character. And then right. there's this completely an unexpected turn. And you're just like, oh, my God, we, you know, just took a roller coaster to hell. And it's yeah. crazy. He's. He's something else or he was something else, but yeah. yeah. Well, and it kind of was interesting because in reading the articles that you sent and in other research that I did, Mm -hmm. you know, some people described him as quiet and a little bit reclusive, but he really wasn't. I mean, he was heavily Mm -hmm. involved in his church and he had friends and he did game nights at his house and stuff like that. Um, But, you know, you can kind of see when you put all the pieces together, like, yeah, yeah, this Definitely, we see how this devolved into this really tragic event. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, even growing up in Michigan, John was pretty straight arrow. Um, he's deeply religious, volunteered at his Lutheran church. He was a Sunday school teacher. I mean, yeah. oh my God. He enlisted during World War II. Um, he was a lab tech, which I thought was kind of interesting. And then after he was discharged, he used the GI Bill to get a bachelor's in business administration and a master's in accounting at the University of Michigan. Why do we love the University of Michigan? Why? It's not Ohio State. Duh! (laughs) He was accounted by all who knew him in his early years as exceptionally smart and capable. So then... You know, he had his degree, and then in 1950, you might recall, that, although you, we weren't personally there, um, the <laughs> Korean War escalated, and he oh, was yeah. recalled to service in the Army, and they were like, here's this smart, well-educated guy, we're going to put him in the Finance Corps. So right. he was stateside, and while stationed at Fort Eustis in Virginia, he met a young Army widow, Helen Morris Taylor, age 25, and mm-hmm. married her when she told him she was pregnant two months after meeting him. Anybody sense a dependa here? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, she had already had an eight year old daughter, Brenda from her first marriage. So um, yeah, his new wife had been married at the age of 16 and widowed at the age of 24. Right. So touching on Helen, just a smidge here, because at the time she married John list, she had syphilis which she did not tell him. And he didn't find out until many, many years later when the tertiary sif was rotting her brain. And this actually explains a lot of her behavior during their marriage, including her alcoholism. But you know, in their early years, they seemed like pretty much any other happy couple. They held hands. They were all lovey-dovey, made all the neighbors mm-hmm. sick. It was awful. Um, but he was an excellent father to his new daughter, Brenda. And he actually adopted her fairly quickly after they got married. And then John and Helen had three children of their own. And John doted on each one of them. I mean, okay, Helen, by all accounts, was a pretty rotten mom. She refused right. to change diapers. John would have to leave work to go home and change his baby's diapers. I'm like, what the hell? Now, of course, during the subject, why didn't they hire like a housekeeper or, Mm -hmm. you know, a mother's helper or somebody? Um, And I imagine a lot of it had to do with, you know, in those early years, accountants weren't making like real money. You know, he was he Mm -hmm. was a clerk. 
you know? And even though his, you know, work was steady and he was rising through the ranks, it wasn't enough to keep, you know, household help around. So, but John went to all the kids' games, their plays, everything. Helen, meanwhile, didn't really like other people. So she didn't really go out or interact with other people. She never went to John's church. She never got involved in, in the community in any, any way. Then Helen, as time went on, just kind of became more unstable because, you know, she would even humiliate John at the very few social interactions they attended together. Mm-hmm. He would, she would compare him to her manly husband that she'd been married to before. The one who gave her Sif, by the way. And just be like, oh, man, you know, he's nothing compared to my first husband kind of stuff and super embarrassing. And he'd have to haul her home, you know. Right. So now at this point, it's kind of easy to cast Helen as the villain. John as the saint. But let's remember, he didn't do anything to get her the kind of help she really needed because it was really important to him that everything look perfect. He was all about appearances. He absolutely was. They were the perfect family to any outsider sort of because there were some cracks but he didn't want anyone to see what was really going on of course this became harder and harder to do as time wore on helen had expensive taste and john never told her no well Mm -hmm. during this time professionally as we said john was doing pretty well he rose through the ranks got promotions and despite his inability to manage people very well he eventually secured a position with xerox and moved the family except brenda to new york which goes to prove my theory that people don't care if you can manage people well. They just want, if you can do your job well and you're an individual contributor, the only way Mm -hmm. people know how to give you a raise is to make you manage people. And if you're terrible at it, then you lose all these people. I have like all these management theories that I wish people would listen to, but yeah, nobody cares. So, and in fact, our audience doesn't either. So I'm just going to say Brenda had had enough of her crazy family and ran off to get married to her high school sweetheart as soon as she turned 18. Yeah. So then 1960, John accepted a position as a VP and comptroller at a bank in New Jersey and purchased a Victorian mansion named Breeze Knoll. Mm-hmm. It was frankly outside his ability to pay for it. So he borrowed money from his mom to help pay for it and still took out a large mortgage. So John, Helen, their three kids, Patricia, John and Frederick and his mom, Alma, all moved into this 19 room mansion, complete with a ballroom and a gorgeous stained glass skylight. Now, Alma had been living on her own. She sold her house to move in with her son, to whom she was quite close. And there, the facade of success and stability really cracked. Now, for a few years, Denise, things held steady enough. The kids were growing up. John had friends over for game nights. The kids had occasional parties with their friends. But the house was falling into decay since there wasn't much money left over for upkeep. He drove Mm -hmm. an old car that needed a lot of repairs. Helen became more and more affected by the tertiary syphilis. Then, in 1971... John List lost his job at the bank. He was 46 years old. Now, it's hard to find a job in your mid-40s even now. And back then was Mm -hmm. no different. Subsequent jobs just didn't pan out. And he could not bear telling his family that he'd lost all their income. Yeah, he'd be considered a failure. Exactly. And especially in those times. You know, this is the early 70s, you know. Patriarchy, alive and well. Yeah. And then I'm, from what I understand of his mother... She wouldn't have taken that well either. Oh, no, of course not. You know, and it's because this is not how they raised him. You know, they raised him to take care of the family and to be the breadwinner and keep a stiff stiff upper lip. So what he did instead is he hung out at the train station. Uh, He read the newspaper and he kept skimming money from his mother's bank accounts to pay the mortgage. He refused to go on welfare as it would entail excruciating embarrassment in the community and violate these principles he had that we talked about of Mm self-sufficiency. But he still couldn't find a permanent job and his money was running out fast. He worried his kids would stray from the light of Jesus once the truth of their financial circumstances was known. Patricia had even been talking about becoming an actress. Mm. The horror. Right? He was going to lose the house. He was utterly bankrupt. But John List was a planner, so he planned his next steps very well. His solution? Murder his family and then disappear. I just... Why not just disappear? I just... I, yeah. Um, hmm. yeah. Well, he couldn't abandon them because then he would be abandoning his duty. 
So it's better. I just, yeah. There's so many oh, yes. jumps well, in logic that don't make any sense. Absolutely not. And at this part, I mean, he obviously, you can tell from there were some mental illness issues happening mm-hmm. up to this point. However, I don't right. think he was mentally ill at the time he did this. I just think right. he thought this is the solution. Because, you know, he kept saying he wanted to make sure his family got to heaven and he wanted to make sure he could see them there. So... Yeah, because somebody who murders their family is going to go straight to heaven. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. I suppose intentions don't count. Ugh, so crazy. Right. So then one morning he had a lovely breakfast with his kids and wife before shuffling them off to school. And once the kids were out of the house, he shot his wife in the head, killing her and dragged her to the ballroom. Mm-hmm. Then he walked up to his mom's apartment in the attic and shot her in the head, too. And he left her there where she fell because she he couldn't move her to the ballroom. Mm -hmm. then he cleaned up the kitchen then he put the rest of his plan into place he called the kids teachers and a few other folks and told them they were leaving town to visit his sick mother-in-law and in fact she had been sick and had canceled her visit to them because of it john Mm -hmm. shared later she would have been another victim if she had made the trip oh yeah so he had a date set and everything in his head yep wow Mm -hmm. he dropped by the bank and closed his and his mother's accounts he stopped the mail and the newspaper and milk delivery Then he waited for the kids to come home. So 16-year-old Patricia called home. She wasn't feeling well, so John picked her up early. Once Mm. they got home, he shot her and took her body to the ballroom. Next home was Fred. John shot him the same way he had with the others and laid his body out next to Patricia. Now John Jr. had a soccer game after school that day. So John Sr. drove to the field and watched him play and then gave him a ride home. Once inside the kitchen, John Sr. shot him in the back of the head. But unlike the other members of the List family who dropped instantly, John John Jr. struggled. John Sr. shot him nine more times before dragging him into the ballroom with the rest of his family. He then said a prayer from the Lutheran hymnal over their bodies. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. So think about how coldly rational he had to be to pull all of that off, even up just up to this point. Right. So then he cleaned up all the blood as best he could. He called recalled saying it was a surprising amount of blood. I'm like, really? You shot him in the head. Um, And then he sat down at the table and ate dinner. When he was done, he washed his dishes and set them to dry in the drainer. He went to bed and slept as he later admitted better than he had in years. I, I, mm. Yeah. Right. I'm like going, did he think his problems were all over at this point? I mean, it was, was he it must the have. reassurance of his plan going according to everything he had hoped for? And it was crazy. Yeah. I just, he must have, he's just so cold. Yeah. So then when he woke up, he set the stage. He turned on lights. He set the air conditioner on cold and turned the radio on to a religious station, which piped through the house on their speaker system. He wrote a five page letter of confession to his pastor. Then he left. He drove to JFK, left his car there, and took a bus back to the city. He then hopped a train to Colorado, where he applied for a social security card under the name Robert Peter Clark. He got a job as a short order cook and started his new life. Yeah. So now, back home, it took about a month before the neighbors back home reported something odd about the Lyft mansion. Mm-hmm. Two of Patricia's teachers were worried about her extended absence, and then they just had this feeling something wasn't right. So they went by the home. Neighbors reported two men lurking about. And when the police showed up, they explained their concerns. So the police broke into the house after, of course, looking in the windows. And Mm -hmm. they ended up crawling through an unlocked window, I think. So most of the light bulbs had burned out. So it had to be super creepy. I mean, think about walking in there. The radio's still playing that crazy religious music. And he left all the lights on, though, you know? He had, but yeah. And so, I mean, it was literally like they got their flashlights and the only bulb left on was one, I believe, up in the attic, which is where they found Alma. Right. But they quickly found bodies of the entire family and John's confession letter, and they put out an APD. But every lead went absolutely nowhere. John had thoroughly disappeared. Right. Less than a year later, the house burned down. It was determined to be arson, but no one was caught. So 18 years go by. And John List is just trucking along as Robert Clark. He got married to a woman named Dolores, moved to Richmond, Virginia, was working as an accountant. And then, and then, Denise, Mm -hmm. 
this new show, America's Most Wanted, <laughs> hit the air. I saw that episode. Did you really? <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. Now that was early days. And so we were checking out this new show. That's so cool. You did that when so at that time, my mother would never have let me watch something like that. So I mm-hmm. didn't get to see that. But they had a bust made of John List to show how he might have aged over the years. And it turned out to be absolutely spot on. Mm-hmm. So two of his neighbors from Colorado called the line. And 11 days later, the FBI showed up at his office and confronted him. He denied being John List even after fingerprints were a match to his army fingerprints. <sighs> he was arrested and charged with five counts of first degree murder. Now, a court appointed psychiatrist testified that List suffered from obsessive compulsive personality disorder. And that he only saw two solutions to his situation, accept welfare or kill his family and send their souls to heaven. Welfare was an unacceptable option, he reasoned, because it would expose him and his family to ridicule and violate his authoritarian father's teachings regarding the care and protection of family members. Yeah, I don't buy that. Yeah. (laughs) On April 12th, 1990, List was convicted of all five counts of first-degree murder. At his sentencing hearing, he denied direct responsibility for his actions. I feel that because of my mental state at the time, I was unaccountable for what happened. I ask all affected by this for their forgiveness, understanding, and prayer. The judge, (laughs) completely unpersuaded. (laughs) Yeah. And he was like, John Emma List is without remorse and without honor. After 18 years, 5 months, and 22 days, it is now time for the voices of Helen, Alma, Patricia, Frederick, and John F. List to rise from the grave. I'm like, I love that line. I hope, you know. That's really good. It's like that should be on a plaque somewhere. (laughs) He imposed a sentence of five terms of life imprisonment to be served consecutively, the maximum permissible penalty at the time. As a side note, apparently Adam Walsh, who was the host Mm -hmm. of America's Most Wanted TV show, had really been rooting for the death penalty for him. But they couldn't, they weren't a death penalty state at the time. So Adam was a little unhappy about that. So List eventually expressed a degree of remorse for his crimes. I wish I had never done what I did, he told Connie Chung in 2002. I've regretted my action and prayed for forgiveness ever since. When asked why he had not taken his own life, he said he believed that suicide would have prevented him from going to heaven where he hoped to be reunited with his family. So, Um, yeah. Suicide is wrong in terms of that type of thinking because you are committing murder to the self. Mm -hmm. So the ultimate sin is the murder. And he didn't make that connection that committing murder of the others would (laughs) prevent him potentially from. Well, he believed that suicide is the one unforgivable sin. Oh, one of those. Yeah. And which is ridiculous, but it's. You know, some people believe that and that's what he believed. And so that's why he did not kill himself. And I do think the other thing is I think he's one of those thought, well, if I ask God's forgiveness, he'll just give it to me. Mm -hmm. And he can't do that with suicide. Right. Right. So List did eventually die of complications from pneumonia at age 82 on March 21st, 2008, while in prison custody at St. Francis Medical Center in Trenton, New Jersey. In reporting his death, the New Jersey Star-Ledger referred to him as the Boogeyman of Westfield, which I'm like, <laughs> that's just too entertaining of a title. So, in a twist only Agatha Christie could have invented, it turned out that gorgeous stained glass skylight was a true Tiffany work of art worth over $100,000. And that's about 650000 wow. in today's money. And that would have solved all their money problems with lots left over had John just known to sell it. Wow. So that is the story of John Emil List. Now you say Emil. I was thinking it was Emil. So I don't actually know how it's pronounced. And I suspect it depends on who has the name on how they want it pronounced. Okay. Well, then you'll pronounce it Emil and I'll say Emil. So we'll be different. And that's okay because differences should be embraced. That is so true. (laughs) Well, let me tell you a little bit about John Emil List. Now, you mentioned he was an only child, but he wasn't exactly an only child, it turns out. Really? Yes. Although in many ways he was. So... He had half-siblings that were all old enough to be his parent. No way. Yes. 
So John was raised as if he was an only child. Oh, I have a sister-in-law like that. Yeah. So John was born in Bay City, Michigan in 1925. And like you said, he joined the U.S. Army. It was actually the reserves and he got called up, but he never saw any action, as you mentioned. And he stayed stateside, even located in Louisiana in 1944. One thing you did not mention, though, is that by the time he graduated from the University of Michigan, due to his participation in ROTC, he gained a second lieutenant rank. Oh, nice. That's lovely. And so he was sent to Newport News, Virginia in that summer of 1950 or early 1951 with that rank. Oh, nice. As we know, he met single mom, Helen Morris. Let's talk about Helen. As you mentioned, she had some issues of her own. Mm -hmm. Helen was a Southern girl born in 1924 in Greensboro, North Carolina to her parents, Edward Morris and Eva Howell, the middle daughter of five children. In 1941, she met second Lieutenant Marvin Everett Taylor, a career U.S. Army soldier stationed in North Carolina. Now, Marvin Taylor was six years her senior when they married. Him being 23, she likely 16 or 17. Mm. Marvin, Texan-born and raised, enlisted in the U.S. Army before the U.S. government even got involved in World War II. Six months before. So he really was career Army. Wow. The couple would have two children, daughter Brenda, born in 1942, and son Kenneth Everett, likely born in California. Baby Kenneth died after two months. Oh, no. And the couple had no more children. In 1949, the couple was stationed at Fort Sill Army Base in Oklahoma. Now a sergeant, Marvin rented an airplane to take himself and Helen to the state fair in Texas. But things went wrong. Mm. From the, this is from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram on October 15, 1949. A Fort Sill Army sergeant and his wife are in serious condition in a Stevensville hospital as a result of the crash of their rented private plane. Oh, no. Sergeant Marvin E. Taylor and his wife both suffered concussion fractures of the spine. They will be placed in body cast. Their condition is reported as as good as can be expected. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I can't help but think that somehow that influenced... Helen and her future later on as well. I'm sure. Helen and Marvin recovered several months after the incident. Marvin was then stationed at Newport News. From there, Marvin was sent to serve in the Korean War. Now, I want to add that it was likely in Newport News when he became an officer because he was an officer at his death through an officer training program or possibly while he was even serving in Korea. I do know he earned the Bronze Star Medal for Valor in November 1950. It was in May 1951 that Helen found out that Marvin was killed in action on April 16, 1951 in North Korea. Mm. Helen was now a widow and single mom. Now, this is where I get a little confused on the timeline. Because mm-hmm. I don't know when she met John. But it seems likely she met him before Marvin even died. Interesting. Or maybe not. What I do know is they got married in December 1951. December 1st. So she finds out he's dead in May. She got with John right away. Well, they got married two months after they met. So. Oh, okay. So then that does fit. That's right. You said that. Okay. And they got married in Baltimore. So. Now, do you know why they got married in Baltimore? No, I don't know why Baltimore. Because they didn't require the SIF test that the other states required. Because if she'd had to been tested for syphilis. Because oh, it didn't make any. Yeah. That's why. Or at least that's what one of my okay, sources because said. because she had been in Virginia. Yeah, they would have made her get no, tested. No, I believe it because otherwise why not stay in Virginia? Right. Yeah. yeah, it was because she didn't want him to find out she had syphilis. Oh, okay. So after they got married, they moved several times. And you said she was pregnant, but if she was pregnant, she lost that baby. No, she lied. Or she wasn't pregnant. She wasn't yeah, pregnant. She lied about thinking. being pregnant. And then after... He, they got married. He found out she wasn't pregnant. He was like, well, I'm married to you now and I won't dishonor us both by getting divorced. So uh, imagine all the tragedy that could have been averted if they had just gotten divorced. Right then. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and at that point, they might have even been able to pull an annulment. Yep, exactly. Uh, anyhow, they moved at least once while they were married to California. And then he was discharged just under five months after they got married. And you covered all the rest with the two of them. Now, John's mother, Alma, held a huge presence in his life. 
likely because he was her only child. She was 84 when her son killed her. Alma was born in 1887 in Frankenmuth, Michigan, to parents Michael John List and Maria Barbara Roth. Hi, guys. We interrupt your favorite podcast to interrupt you with an ad for your new favorite podcast. Wait, wait. Isn't this playing on somebody else's show? Exactly. So then how are we? I thought we were their new favorite podcast. Well, we're going to become their new favorite podcast after they hear this advertisement for our show. What's our show called, Justine? Superiority Complex. Yeah. Where can they find us, Patrick? Uh, Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, exactly. You can go to at Soup Complex on Twitter, S-O-U-P Complex, and you can go to Facebook.com slash Soup Complex. But our main page is on Podbean, and you can find us there at www.superioritycomplex.podbean.com. New episodes are out every Thursday. Justine. Yes. What do we talk about on the Superiority Complex? Nerdy stuff. Perfect. Don't get all sensual with your voice. Yeah, did you hear that? I heard it. It's a little inappropriate. If you want to hear a little more of that, tune in to the Superiority Complex. One more time, Justine, what do we talk about? Nerdy stuff. Nah, wasn't no. the same. You tried. Before I go further, let's talk about Frankenmuth. I love Frankenmuth. It's, have you been there? I had never heard of it until I was doing the research here. And now I'm a little obsessed. So I, I told my husband we are going to Frankenmuth someday with the kids and we're going to go visit. Because, oh, yeah. It's awesome. I'll explain to everybody listening because I'm getting there. But <laughs> I love Frankenmuth. You should definitely go there. Okay. So Frankenmuth is a town that was home to the list since the mid-19th century. And it sits about 14 miles southeast of Saginaw and 20 miles from Saginaw Bay on the eastern part of Michigan. The name is German, meaning Courage of the Franconians. And Franconia is a province in the Kingdom of Bavaria. Well, I feel very edified. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. (laughs) Um, It was named by the people who settled there. Families like the List who came from that part of Bavaria starting in 1845. The original settlers were a strict sect of German Lutherans. Ah. Uh, yeah. With the hope of starting a mission with Native Americans. A goal that failed as the indigenous people left soon after they got there. Mm-hmm. Now, Frankenmuth didn't become an official village or town until 1904 and had a population of around 700 at that time. It wasn't incorporated as a city until 1959. Today, it has a population of 5,300. Now, while still a smaller community, they get a lot of tourism. In fact, that's why I want to go see it. Um, the town is nicknamed, the town's nickname is Little Bavaria. And the town celebrates its German heritage, holding a Bavarian festival each summer, as well as a flower festival, scarecrow fest in the fall, and of course, Oktoberfest. Mm-hmm. They even have a Christmas store open year round called Bronner's Christmas Wonderland. Mm-hmm. And they have a really amazing fried chicken place there, too. And German food. And mm-hmm. I, I'm part German. My husband is almost, he's really German. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, his whole mom's side of the family came from Luxembourg. Mm-hmm. And part of his dad's family is German. So, yeah, I think he did the DNA, and he's 25% German still. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's very I, cool. I imagine I might be 7%. I mean, that's... <laughs> well, so, there you go. You can go wallow in it and Frankenmuth because Frankenmuth is magical and everyone should go there. Yeah. And I lived in Germany when I was a kid. See, you've so. got all these connections. I do. So I'm like, we need to go. It's only like a six, seven hour drive, I think. So we're going to make it yeah. happen one of these days. You should totally do it. And then stop by Mackinac Island while you're up there and... Just make like a whole thing of it. It'll be super fun. Isn't like Michigan, pure Michigan. That's it. Go experience pure Michigan. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Okay. Now back to Alma. (laughs) I find her, (laughs) I find her marriage to John Frederick curious. Not only was she marrying for the first time at 37, which that's when I first got married. But back then that's a bit rare. Mm Mm-hmm. But her new husband was 60 years old. Oh, my. So 23 years older than her. Uh Uh-huh. And he was her first cousin once removed. Interesting. Yes. And I think that explains a little something. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a lot of something. Who knows? Huh. So we're going to talk about John Frederick List, her husband, John's father. 
He was born in April 1864 in Frankenmuth. On Halloween 1886, he married a woman a mere seven months his junior, Miss Maria Ann Hubinger. The couple would leave Frankenmuth and settle in Bay City, just 20 miles away, with their family sometime after 1890. And they had two sons and would adopt a daughter, Maria, before 1900. And the daughter they adopted was born to German parents in Milwaukee in November 1894. Now, while Frederick, and that's what he went by, was Frederick, grew up a son of a farmer, farming did not interest him. (laughs) Instead, he started out by working as a grocer and later would buy his own store. And he would run it with his wife, Maria, helping out once their children, all but Maria, that is, had left home. Okay. Now, Frederick had a very successful business, and it provided well for his family. Then on June 28, 1923, wife Maria died from exhaustion due to pernicious vomiting. Oh, no. Yeah. Wait, it wasn't arsenic, was it? I don't know. I wouldn't think it was, but you never know. Wow. <laughs> We're learning. There's things that weren't checked back then. True that. Then in October 1924, so a little over a year later, his, adot- his adopted daughter Maria, a newlywed and new mother, died of transverse myelitis. <gasps> oh, my God. And inflammation of the spinal cord. Now, oh my when God. he, yeah, I mean, tragedy after tragedy. So, when he and Alma married, the ceremony was quiet and private. And he got, he and Alma got married about a month after his adopted daughter died. So, they were still in mourning for her. Now, from the Frankenmuth News on December 4th, 1924, Miss Alma List and Frederick List of Bay City were quietly married Thanksgiving Day at Bay City. Mrs. List was a well-known Frankenmuth girl and successful trained nurse. Mm -hmm. Now, Frederick would die nearly 20 years later in August 1944 of liver cancer. Mm -hmm. He was 80. Son John was in Louisiana with the Army at his father's death, according to the obituary. Wow. I noticed, um, I saw a couple different articles, and they said that the father was kind of cold and very authoritarian. And it could be he was like that with his younger children, or his older children, I should say, his first kids. But I almost wonder if it's because of his age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was 60 yeah. when he was born. Yeah. I, I think it's remarkable that given that his dad was 60 years old when he was born, that he still had him until he was an adult. I mean, yeah, I would true. have expected, you know, Alma to have been raising him as a single mother from like six years old on. So. Mm-hmm. Whether that was lucky or not depends on whether or not he was a good father. So, And I almost wonder if Frederick even thought that they would have any kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like he didn't have that many children with his first wife, Maria. Mm-hmm. Maybe thought he, he thought he couldn't have that many. And mm-hmm. here she, he's marrying a 37-year-old woman, probably thinks, well, she's done. Yep. And here comes John. Wow. I wonder how the older kids felt about that. You know? I would love to know. But... I, I have no idea because you never see reference to them. Right. Especially considering it wasn't that long after their own mother died that he remarried. Now right? that's very common for men to do that. You know, mm-hmm. especially if they had good marriages because right. they really liked being married. They want to keep it going, you know, but it can be really disruptive for the family that's left, you know? Yeah. So I want to say his oldest child was, hold on, 13, was 37 when he got married again. So he was, his oldest child was 38 when John was born. Oh my goodness. And the youngest was 36. So when I say they could have been his father, I'm not kidding. Yeah, exactly. And they had their own lives, their own kids. They yeah. didn't have time for their brother. Mm-hmm. And there, I, my guess is there was little to no relationship. Yeah. I and would expect not. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Frederick was the youngest child of eight to his immigrant parents, Johann List and Maria Barbara Lauder. They were both born in Bavaria, Johann in 1816, Maria in 1821, and they were early settlers to Frankenmuth. Now, why did people come to Frankenmuth? Johann and Maria were among the first group that was inspired to come to Michigan in 1845 by Reverend Johann Conrad Wilhelm Lohe a Lutheran pastor. Now, Lohe wanted to create a colony in Michigan, a place where Germans could speak their language in peace, as well as create a mission for the indigenous people. Okay. He had high goals. 
<laughs> Frankenmuth was located on land that once served as a reservation for the Chippewa people. Hmm. Now, Lohi assembled 18 people to colonize the area. One of those was Johan, the other Maria Lauter. But they were not yet married. Oh, no. According to a thesis I read, written by Keith R. Johnston Jr. in 1988, four unmarried women were part of the group, and each married a man who Lohi had selected. Hmm. And I, I kind of get the impression like Lohi had selected for the women to marry. Ah. The couples did not marry before they left due to restrictive marriage laws that it cost money to get married in Bavaria at the time. And okay. So instead, they got married once they were on board the ship. Hmm. So I couldn't find a marriage record for the two, and that would be why. <laughs> mm-hmm. hmm. So before Johan and the others left for Michigan, Reverend Lohi met the settlers several times to go over what needed to be done once they arrived, as well as giving them an in-depth study into Lutheran theology, even sending with them a church constitution with 88 paragraphs. Oh my gosh. Yes. So I think this kind of a little bit explains that deep religiousness mm-hmm. within John List because it had been pushed down by his father and his grandfather. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. His grandfather was the original settler. Now, the group would reach Saginaw City on July 10th, 1845, completing a three month journey. Immediately, the settlers got to work buying land and building homes after first building a community house, what would become their church. While that original structure no longer stands, the church does. It's called St. Lorenz Lutheran Church and has a plaque listing the names of the first settlers, including Mr. and Mrs. Johann List. Oh, wow. Yeah. Although I think it says Mr. and Mrs. John List, but that's who it's referring to. Yeah. Oh, and two more quick notes. The church holds a once a month worship service all in German. Oh, how cool. And what is known as the Missouri Synod of the Lutheran Church. Mm Mm-hmm actually arose out of communities like Frankenmuth in Ohio and Missouri as well from German Lutheran practices. I did not know that. I didn't either. That's why I thought I had to share it. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. So not long after Johann and Maria came to Michigan, his older brother, Johann Adam, or John Adam, arrived with his wife, Margarita Mueller, and their five children. After they arrived, they had at least five more children, one being Michael John List, born in 1851. Michael was the father of Alma, John's mother. Before we discuss that, though, we'll talk about John Adam and John's parents, John's great-grandparents. The List family came from the Rostel area of Bavaria. John and Adam were the sons of Johann George, born in 1784. Um, George (laughs) married... Kunigunda Barbara Beerlein, just two years his junior. It's spelled K-U-N-I-G-U-N-D-E. My goodness. Now, George and Kunigunda would immigrate to the U.S. as well. George died at age 75 in 1859, Kunigunda at age 89 on Christmas Day, 1875. Wow. Now, the furthest I could go on the List family was to Leonhard List, born in 1690, Bavaria. John's fourth great, well, actually, it's a double great-grandfather, I should say. John's fourth great-grandfather and his fifth great-grandfather at the same time. Now, the Beerlein family, Kunigunda's family, also settled in Frankenmuth. They originated at Buchschwabach, Bavaria, with Johann Leonhard Beerlein in 1720 and his wife, Margarita Gartner. Now, we're going to talk about Alma's father, Michael John List, in more depth. And Alma's father was first cousin of Frederick. Ah, that's right. Yep. He was born in 1851, and he was a carpenter by trade who spent his entire life in Frankenmuth. In 1879, he married Maria Barbara Roth, daughter of a Bavarian immigrants, Johann Jacob Roth and Maria Margaret Meyer. The couple would have six children over the span of 24 years. Alma was number four in 1887. Maria Alma's mother died young at age 41. Michael never remarried. Instead, he raised his young children with the help of his three oldest daughters, Hulda, Augusta, and Alma. Michael died in 1930, and I found his obituary in the Frankenmuth News on June 5, 1930. And there's a lovely picture of him, and I will share that. Oh, 
Michael John List, a lifelong resident of Frankenmuth, passed away at his home on Main Street Friday. Mr. List, who was a carpenter by trade in 1879, built the large house on Main Street in which he lived until the time of his demise. He was one of the carpenters who built the St. Lawrence Church in 1879 and was one of a delegation of four who selected the plans for the church, taking a church in Cleveland, Ohio as a model, after visiting edifices in several large cities of the country. Mr. List served as substitute mail carrier on Route 1 from 1907 to 1925, was a member of the Lutheran Bund of Michigan, besides being a lifelong member of St. Lawrence Church. So he was a letter carrier, but not a postmaster. Yes. <laughs> so no close. Letters. So close. I know. So close. Not there yet. We still love our postal carriers, though. He was like a substitute one, too. So he wasn't even a full-time one. So let's talk about John's aunts and uncles, Alma's brothers and sisters. The oldest of Alma's siblings was Hulda Elizabeth Margarita, who married John Ruprecht in April 1902. Their marriage only lasted less than a year because Hulda died of tuberculosis and March 1903 at the age of 22. Oh, I did find it a little interesting that her husband recovered quickly after her death, marrying just six weeks later. Oh, yeah. Now, Sister Augusta was an entrepreneur owning her own business, a millinery. Oh, how fun. Yeah. Millinery. Millinery. Mm -hmm. She made hats. Yeah. So for those who might, yeah, yeah, for those who might not have heard of the term before, she had a hat shop and she made them. So she designed and made the hats, and she and Alma worked together as milliners in early, as early as 1910. Augusta never married. She lived to be 85. Now, the sibling that lived the longest was the youngest sister, Lydia Johanna Sophie, who was married to Reverend Herbert Meyer, a Lutheran minister. She died in 1991 at the age of 97. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Alma's brother, Franz Leonhard Johann Friedrich, or Frank, moved to Chicago, the only child to leave Michigan. Well, that is, except his sister Lydia, whose husband moved her, but the only one who went on his own until Alma moved in with son John and his family. Now, I've saved Alma's brother Emil Adam for last. Just for you, my dear Zelda. (gasps) Ooh, tell me more. Emil was just three years older than sister Alma. In 1914, he married Caroline Hubinger and raised five children. But that's not why I bring him up. We've had a dry spell with postmasters. And while Emil was not a postmaster, he comes awfully close. For 42 years, from 1902 to 1946, he worked as a rural mail carrier. Oh, yay! He died at age 69 in 1954. And I even have his obituary if you want to check it out and hear about his mail carrying. Yay! We love our mail carriers. Yes, we do. Now, before we finish... I want to discuss Brenda Taylor, Helen's daughter. Yeah. And I'm, daughter with M- Marvin. I'm very curious about Brenda. Yeah. So this is John's stepdaughter, the only family member to live because she had her own family in 1971. When John married her mom, she was nine years old. According to Brenda, John took the family out often. They would go out for pizza and Saturday nights and go to church on Sunday. John was, by all intents and purposes, her dad. And that's what she called him. He was the only dad she remembered. She didn't remember Marvin Taylor. And it's probably because he was gone so much mm-hmm. at the time. And according to her, he was loving and nurturing. Mm-hmm. He was the one you turned to, not her mom. When her mom had her sister Patty and then John Frederick and Michael, her half-siblings, it was Brenda who took care of the babies mm. more than their own mother. Mm-hmm. So at the age of 17, she and her boyfriend, Wayne Herndon, ran away to elope in Indiana. They were denied by officials. And then Wayne was in an accident, putting him in the hospital. So her parents were called and they brought them home, telling them they were too young to get married. Not too long after, though, Brenda was pregnant. And so that she was allowed to marry Wayne then. Now, she is quoted as saying, I just didn't want to live at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When List was caught, Brenda, now married to her third husband, planned to be at the trial. In all aspects, she planned to support John. She believed in him. That was her dad. Mm-hmm. It is all about my family. It is my father. I still consider him my father. I still have feelings for him. I would just like to be there. She empathized with him and thought the best of him before the trial started. But after the trial... Her feelings changed. And this is from The Courier, 
It's a newspaper out of New Jersey on May 2nd, 1990. I'm only going to read little parts of it. It's the pieces don't fit anymore. Stepdaughter, sister-in-law say they don't know List the killer. To his once fiercely loyal stepdaughter, John E. List is a puzzle. List's stepdaughter, Brenda DeYoung, says she learned more than she ever wanted to know about her family during the trial. During the trial, the defense revealed at the time of the murders that Helen List was in terminal stages of syphilis that she had contracted from her first husband. I do have a quick question before I continue, though. Mm-hmm. Isn't syphilis treatable? Um, it is now. I don't know if it was back then or not. Was it then? I could have sworn it might have been, but okay. Sorry. Tangent. No worries. This occurred to me. All this was almost too much for DeYoung, who says she never knew her mother had syphilis. It was quite a shock, DeYoung said yesterday by phone. A woman you think you know as your mother? I just never knew about it. It hurt. I kept hearing all these different things. It's hard to take. Even worse for DeYoung is the dawning realization that she doesn't really know John E. List, the man who adopted her around age 10 and whom she always considered her father. Even though it's finally ending, I still don't understand a lot of things, DeYoung said softly. I don't understand why he didn't just walk away from the problems. Why couldn't he be man enough to walk away? Mm -hmm. During a court statement yesterday, Liz said he was unaccountable for the murders, like you mentioned, due to his mental state, asking for forgiveness, understanding, and their prayers. DeYoung said, (laughs) that sounds like something he would say. Being a Christian man, he thinks everyone's just going to turn around and forgive him. I just don't understand the man. Where once she wanted to be with and support List at the trial, DeYoung now says she's not certain she wants any contact with him. Mm. Maybe it's better to just leave well enough alone. Mm -hmm. And then it goes on to say that she thought he would do just fine in prison. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And now that this thing is behind him and he doesn't have to lie, he might live to be a hundred or more. Remember, this man is full of surprises. But he did not. You know what, though? He lived a good long time after this, though. I mean, he, he lived till 2008. He, he lived to the age of 84. So he lived almost 40 years longer than his victims. Oh, true. A lot longer. Here's a couple of random facts for you. Ooh, I found I in those. newspapers in New Jersey. John List in 1967 was the PTA president. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. In 1968, John reported a theft of two wheels from his tractor mower in his garage. And that's my facts. And that is the family tree of John Emil List. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. And so, I mean, I hope Brenda, like, lived happily ever after. Do we know if she did? I know that she died young. She was only, like, in her 50s when she died. Yeah, she died in 1993 in Kalamazoo, Michigan. She had at least four husbands. Mm. So I'm not sure she was happy. Oh, it's, you know, it's hard to say. And she had at least, I should say, at least four husbands. After a while, it was hard to track her. And how many children did she have? Um, one or two, but they were hard to find because I couldn't find a uh, an obituary or anything for her. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. It's just, I, I can't imagine. I, it, there's so much about him that's so wrong. Yeah. And yeah. I just, I just, yeah. I think. I start to, I think he was probably a sociopath. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. One of the um, blogs I was reading about this suggested Mm -hmm. that he may have been, which is not, you know, a reason that he would have killed anybody, Mm -hmm. but that um, he may have uh, been autistic. And one of the things that they were, they had mentioned frequently was that he, you know, was very socially awkward you know, and had habits that are similar to people who have autism. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm like, that's, that is interesting as well. You know, he was highly structured. He was, you know, um, saw things kind of black and white. And I'm like, not that I I don't think that that is obviously an excuse to kill people. No, but I think it adds another dimension to what we're Mm -hmm. learning about him and his family. Um, Yeah. I mean, (sighs) His dad was cold. I'm guessing it's a combination of he wasn't expecting more kids. He's 60, Mm -hmm. 61 when his son's born. Mm -hmm. He probably wasn't wanting to be involved. He was done with doing the parenting thing. He was a grandfather. Mm -hmm. But he has this young wife who's his cousin. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's and then she was really hardcore from everything I've read that Mm -hmm. she was the very strict, very. Mm -hmm. She was more tough on him than even her his dad was Mm -hmm. yeah so i think that you know the the roots of psychopathy were definitely there and then Mm -hmm. 
like just the way he chose to live his life and the decisions that he made and at every step of the way he could have made different decisions, you know? So mm-hmm. he is certainly no victim, you know, no matter no. how he wants to paint himself to be, or no matter how hard his marriage was or, you know, how hard things became, he was not a victim. And I think that had he made different decisions at any step of the way, this all of this could have been averted and he actually could have had kind of a happy life but he did not choose any of those things yeah so i'm looking out of curiosity when does syphilis become curable Mm -hmm. (laughs) because you know she knew she had it yeah so why didn't she ever try to treat it Mm -hmm. and maybe it got to a point it wasn't treatable so syphilis is curable but if Mm -hmm. treated too late it can permanently damage your heart and brain yeah, it was in the mid 1940s. The end, they they had the cure oh. by then. So she could have gotten it treated the moment she knew she had it. Oh my gosh! So that brings up a whole different series of questions. Was she just so much in denial, or she wanting to keep that part of her husband, which is beyond screwed up? Oh my god! Yeah, or was she embarrassed and didn't want it? But you would think her doctor would have known. I mean, there must have been medical records to say that she had it. I just, I, I don't know because, and did, would she have had access to it? You know, right. like, you know, once they were out of the military, she might not have had regular checkups or, you know. True. But she was with the military until like 1952. Oh yeah. Fair point there. And they're on top of STDs in the military. Mm-hmm. So by the time she got it, what I would think it would have been treatable. Wow. The moment she knew. Wow. So that opens a whole other like yeah, question. Why and I'm not blaming. Treated? Yeah. I'm not blaming Helen for being murdered by no means. Oh, of course just, not. No, but I am blaming her for not disclosing she had syphilis. Yes. And I'm blaming her for not taking care of herself. Yeah. I'm blaming her for not taking care of the children. Oh my gosh. Yes. I mean, including Brenda. It doesn't sound like she's a great mom to Brenda Mm-mm. either. So I'm just kind of like, okay, I mean, obviously didn't deserve to be murdered, you know, but I just think this whole thing was so tragic just from the get go. It's like a horror film, really. Yeah. You know, if if you're he was going to be a coward Mm -hmm. as it was, just walk away, Mm -hmm. go disappear. Mm -hmm. Then then nobody's looking at you going, oh, you failed because you're not there anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. You know why? I just. It, with fi- family annihilators like this, mm-hmm. it it seems to be wrapped up in their ego. Yeah. Every time. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of times they kill themselves, you know, like, and that general attitude, like an abuser has, if no, they, nobody can have them if I can't have them. Right. That type of attitude. I think it was more about that than it was about his own, but it could have been about his own ego. Well, I, I honestly think a lot of it was his just warped view of religion. You know, his warped view of God. And it was like, and he was, had, you know, tied himself up in a knot. And, you know, you see it in people sometimes when they're really Mm -hmm. stressed out, suddenly they become hyper-focused on something that's not really related to their actual problem, but they become hyper-focused on it. And so he's seen his kids and it's the seventies and we all know how the seventies turned out, you know? (laughs) And, and so, you know, he sees his daughter and suddenly envisioning her living a life of pouring around and cocaine and being an actress. That's true. You know, and you know, his daughter Brenda was off doing the wild thing with her boyfriend. And I mean, I am sure that his brain was exploding because he couldn't Mm -hmm. control anything around him. And so it's like, okay, what can I control? Well, I can make sure my, my people get to heaven. And if I murder them, they go to heaven. So it's, and, and so I just think that, you know, he made a lot of very poor decisions And, and I think he was fully aware of what he was doing. He knew it was wrong. Mm -hmm. He knew what murder meant. You know, I mean, he might have been crazy, quote unquote, but he wasn't crazy in a way that would absolve him of this. You know, I don't even think he was crazy in a way that you could go into a mental health hospital and Mm -hmm. get treated for it either. Mm -hmm. It was so a part of him Mm -hmm. that it's just, yeah, yeah, I just don't. Yeah. And I think um, what is interesting going through the newspapers, though, is that they were regularly looking for him. They never stopped. And the newspapers had every couple years would have another article about him Mm -hmm. as they were trying to find him. 
Yeah. So they, I mean, it's not like some cases where it kind of drops. Clearly, the community wanted him. That's why they went to America's Most Wanted. Right. But. Yep. Yep. That's crazy. And I'm just like so thankful for America's Most Wanted. You know, I mean, this was a coup for them early on to catch somebody that had been functionally invisible for almost 20 years. So good on them. Service to society. So, yeah, that was John List, and um, it's tragedy, and remember, divorce is an option. That's all we've got on him, and we'll be back again here soon with another mini-sode. Thank you for listening to Murderous Roots. If you enjoyed our podcast, we hope that you'll subscribe and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and any suggestions you might have for future episodes. You can find us on most social media outlets, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even TikTok. You can also find us at murderousroots.com. That's M-U-R-D-E-R-O-U-S-R-O-O-T-S.com, where you can find more materials related to the episode that we just discussed.